Hello, this is Paul Sachs. I'm editor-in-chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and this is the OFID podcast. And that's a reminder, that's OFID and not OFID. So one of the silver linings about living through a pandemic has been an introduction to certain brilliant thinkers outside of medicine, thinkers I might otherwise not have known. Prime example is Dr. Zainab Tufekshi, associate professor at the University of North Carolina, sociologist and computer programmer, and writer for The Atlantic and The New York Times. If ever someone embodied the word prescient, meaning having knowledge of events before they take place, this is the person. So I'm thrilled that she's joining us today. Zainab, welcome. Thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm blushing through the podcast. (laughs) Anyway, you deserve it. So tell me a little about yourself, how you ended up in your current very interesting role. Well, I think the one thing that really characterizes what I do is interdisciplinary, crossing between borders. Uh, I started as the computer science side of things, and I grew up in Turkey, but I was very quickly impressed by the social implications because, you know, in Turkey, we had a lot of censorship and I had started working for uh, technology companies. I was working for IBM, in fact, and even before the internet came to Turkey, which was late, IBM had a little intranet, which was like a little internet, but, you know, IBM's Mm. a big global company, so it blew my mind because I couldn't get more than one TV channel, uh, but I could just talk to thousands of people on these forums, and I thought this is going to change everything, so I kind of switched to sociology just to study the social impacts before it was a thing. So my career, academically speaking, has been very... Diverse. Yes, diverse, let's say, and before some of the fields, they, they just didn't really exist as we understand it now. You either did sociology or you did technology. The idea that technology would have these social impacts, uh, it wasn't just something you studied like that. So thinking about you know crossing borders, I've lived you know, from Turkey, I've lived in Europe, I've lived in the U.S., I lived in lots of different cultures, and I spent a lot of my pre-pandemic year in Hong Kong doing research on the social movement there because that was very interesting for the things I was looking at in technology and internet, which as we probably will get to when the pandemic hit, turned out to be a significant entry point to information and points of view. Yeah, exactly. But there must have been something about pandemics that drew your interest because you say you've always been interested in them. Why why is that? Not only have I always been interested in them, I actually, I've been using them to teach like introduction to sociology, partly because for the average, you know, first year student, things like race, gender, class sound interesting, but globalization can sound a little more abstract. And I would use pandemics to explain a lot of concepts that I thought were important, like how connected we are, how travel works. I would try to explain why the global institutions are necessary, why you need you know, surveillance for new diseases. And of course, there's also these nice concepts like exponential growth that you can really explain best with pandemics. In fact, you know, in my previous writing career, the one time I did write about pandemics was with the Ebola scare, not this year's, uh, of course. And I just sort of went back and read it like a month ago. And it was basically, yeah, we're failing this. And it really doesn't bode well for the future pandemics. Like if we can't really devote resources to do what we need to do in this particular case and instead freak out about the wrong thing, 
like Ebola coming to the U.S. rather than how do we respond to an emerging outbreak where it's happening. I, I was like, we should worry about this. Uh, it's just a fascinating, mm. interesting topic. <laughs> also for human sociology, history, they're, they're a constant part of human society. They have occur and reoccur and they change history all the time. So as someone who's always been interested in history and big dynamics, and plus, of course, memory. I've mm-hmm. always asked my students, like, do you know about the 1918 Spanish flu mm-hmm. when I would teach pandemics? And almost nobody knew about it. Mm, interesting. Which brings us, of course, to early 2020. And you realized before many others that a pandemic was about to occur. If you were to think back and go over when you knew with certainty that it was going to happen, there must have been at some point when you just knew yeah. this is real it's not something that can be contained. It's coming here. It's weird. My Amazon purchase history is kind of like a timeline. <laughs> so like many others, I first heard about the mystery viral pneumonia on, I believe, January 1st, when we first got the warning. Yeah, ProMed mail. Yeah, we got the ProMed mail, but very relevant to my own field. We got the word that uh, a few doctors like Dr. Lee in uh, China were trying to warn Mm. others through WhatsApp and had been censored and police had showed up and there was this sort of ripple, so to speak, in (laughs) in the cyberspace about this kind of attempt to warn. My example in the past of a pandemic to teach often was SARS. I knew a lot about SARS because of that. So to me, like uh, viral pneumonia in Wuhan, immediate like ears perk up. Mm. Uh, on January 7th, I thought, um, okay, let me order some masks. <laughs> uh, because like, I also wanted to go back to Hong Kong. So at that point, I still don't know what the depth of the crisis is. But mm. I thought I'm going to order some masks and I'm just going to get my own sort of pandemic readiness going. In fact, people who know me were like, why are you ordering hand sanitizers? Because I'm not really a particularly like hygiene, (laughs) it's the polite word, they're obsessed. But I was like ordering these supplies and people around were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, you hear viral pneumonia coming out of uh, Wuhan and you hear censorship, like for anybody who's lived through SARS, it's two and two, right? That something's going on, but not what? So the week I knew for sure was the week of January 20th, mm-hmm. because two things happened. One, China shut down Wuhan, a city of 10 million. And with like studying authoritarians, uh, a really good rule of thumb is look at what they do, not what they say. Mm. Another rule of thumb that people might recognize from evolutionary biology is always look at costly signals, right? Mm. If you're shutting down a city of 10, 11 million, you're not just doing this randomly. This is a very costly thing to do. And it's not the kind of thing a country like China, which is fairly competent in how it handles dissent and Mm. problems, right, Mm. is going to do lightly because this is a huge headache to them. And at that point, I thought if they're doing this and there's all these rumors swirling around, you know, from Hong Kong, from Taiwan, other places, this must be a big deal. This is a huge deal. For me, that was a complete sign that it's out of control there. The second sign for me was that they probably just learned about it themselves. I thought Wuhan authorities had lied to central authorities because it happens all the time. If they had the political will to shut down Wuhan on January 20th, they probably would have done some things earlier 
And I thought it's plausible that the Chinese leadership realized the depth of the problem in the past week, which would fit with the censorship of the local doctors. And after that, of course, they had a great incentive to prevent Mm. the epidemic from becoming a pandemic in China and the world. Then we had this amazing, like sort of miracle week of papers coming out of China. It was January 20th. And until then, they were lying or covering up. Mm -hmm. But at that point, their incentive structure had flipped. They wanted to prevent this. And they were telling us the truth. And like, I think Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, before even a paper, he was literally giving press conferences saying there's pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic transmission. Yeah. It was amazing how quickly the science came out of China all of a sudden. Yeah, so the January 20th week, there's a New England Journal of Medicine uh, paper that's an atypical clinical presentation. They were telling us in press conferences, this is spreading without symptoms. And I knew, because I knew SARS, that we had contained it partly because infectiousness and contagiousness coincided. You got fever, you were infectious, you could have a temperature gun and, you know, catch people at the airport. So that week I said, okay, this is done, over. (laughs) It got out of hand to the point they had to close down Wuhan, which is very costly. And now they're telling us a typical clinical presentation and pre-symptomatic, asymptomatic contagion. It, it, that's it. So I knew, like, I started telling people we're going to get a pandemic in my personal life. I started sort of rearranging, canceling travel, doing all of those things. And that's when I sort of started tweeting about it. But not being a medical person, I never thought I would be doing more. I just started getting ready personally mm-hmm. because I was sure this is going to happen. Well, let me uh, take you to March, and you started tweeting about masks, and then you ended up writing a piece in the New York Times that really tipped the scales for many, including me, on this issue. We had been messaging the public that masks weren't necessary, uh, except for healthcare professionals to keep you know us safe and to keep us from spreading infection to others, but you didn't buy it. And how long had this been brewing this thought of yours and what was your inspiration and also i'd be curious what the pushback was after you wrote it so the first piece i wrote was at the end of february i wrote a we got to get ready we got to flatten the curve piece because i couldn't find any i wrote it for scientific american because i owed them a blog post (laughs) and i thought how about this because I was watching I mean February 2020 was like an out-of-body experience for me I was watching people just continue to travel and hold conferences and do all of those things and we have all these pictures coming out of Wuhan I'm like what do you think is going to happen (laughs) this is going to happen so I kept trying to find an article to send to people to say this is how you get ready this is why, you know, flattening the curve is something you got to do. Now, these have become kind of everyday concepts now, and they're obviously not my concepts. These are very basic epidemiology, which I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nobody was saying them. Like, as far as I know, my uh, February article explaining flattening the curve is the first, like, mainstream media article explaining the concept. Um, and again, if you read it now, it's very basic. It says, you know, hospitals will get overloaded. You want to, you know, fill up your prescription medication. Things will get closed down. You want to do your shopping. You just want to get ready to stay out of crowded places. Stop traveling. I wrote the thing I wished was written so I could tell people around me to start getting ready. And I just, the media was still saying things like, beware of the pandemic panic. The real problem is you panicking and, you know, being irrational. And mm. late into February, so I got very frustrated. So I wrote that and I linked to a list of things to get 
One of which was masks. It was just a generic list. It wasn't specific, but if you're like preparing for a potential, you know, epidemic or something, it's a very obvious thing to sort of have in your house. And then I started getting this enormous pushback from healthcare officials, health communicators, not really a lot of doctors, but a lot of medical people, health journalists who were saying things like, how dare you link to a list that says masks. And I'd even kind of waived the mask question. I was like, all right, there aren't that many left, so don't worry about it. But the link I list, just put them there. And then people were saying they're dangerous. If you wear them, they'll cause infection and increase your risk of infection. I was like, you're kidding. How? (laughs) Like, what is the mechanism by which this is going to happen? I understand the shortage. And I had put in, if there's a shortage, of course, we're going to prioritize medical workers. I no question about that. But we can tell people to make cloth masks, and we really certainly don't need to tell them that, you know, wearing a mask increases your risk of infection, because then why are medical people wearing it, right? This Mm -hmm. makes no sense. And people will say, well, they're trained. And I'm like, come on, like, there's a limit. People aren't going to buy something like a mask. It's so complicated that we can train medical professionals, but we could never teach you, and it's going to cause you harm. So I started having a lot of back and forth with people who were mad at me. They started sending me articles showing, allegedly, that masks were harmful. And I would read the articles, and I'm like, this is not an article showing masks are harmful. They're showing that that is paribus, if everything is equal, wearing a mask better is better than being careless with it. Or if you're in an actual medical facility, taking it off incorrectly is worse than taking it off better, right? None of them were comparing to not wearing masks. I was like, this is not making sense. Then people started arguing things like, well, what if you touch the you know, outside of your mask? And I'm like, if the outside of your mask is contaminated, that is very, very good news. <laughs> because you didn't breathe in what's on, like how on earth is the outside of my mask getting contaminated? The problem, so it just kind of blew my mind. So I started tweeting about this too. I started saying, look, we have pre-symptomatic transmission. You cannot tell people to wear a mask when they're sick because basically social theory says the stigma will prevent them from wearing a mask. You already have Asian Americans getting attacked for wearing masks. So uh, even if you didn't have pre-symptomatic transmission, there's no way you can tell just the sick to wear a mask in a pandemic. I kept tweeting like every argument (laughs) and waiting for anyone but me to write this because I'm like, I want this to come from, I don't know, a former director of CDC, <laughs> you know, head of like some Harvard professor uh, in the medical school. You see what I'm saying? Like, I want this to come from somebody with overwhelming credentials because public health messaging needs authority behind it. And I'm nobody, right? I cannot like just wade into this. And I literally waited like till March 15th. Yep. And then I went to the New York Times and said, nobody's doing this. I'm going to do this. And I got, I got lucky. I got an editor who didn't make me hem and haw. I just put it very straightforwardly saying, here's why this message doesn't work sense. Now, if you, I understand the concern about shortages, which in which case we have to appeal to people and say, how about we're going to get cloth masks, we're going to increase the production, we're going to preserve medical masks and respirators for medical personnel, but here's what we're going to do. And then prepared to end my career because... <laughs> <laughs> I was contradicting the CDC and the World Health Organization and never in a million years I thought like I would go into my, you know, very first pandemic opposing the CDC and the World Health Organization. Like that's not 
decide I'm normally on in anything. Yeah. But I just had to do it. I waited for the backlash. <laughs> Some came. But instead of getting like the pushback, I got a lot of people saying, yeah, finally, thank you. Somebody yeah. said it, including from medical people. Yep. I heard from the CDC people that it was like pivotal. It just sort of yeah. created the argument within the agency that finally tipped over shortly. It was great. I can tell you it had a big effect on me personally because I was invited to be on a clinician's panel and they were presenting some sample cases. This is mid-March, right after you wrote your piece. And they were making fun of someone who was hoarding masks and I said to them, I said, you know, there's there's a lot of good points to be made for use of masks when you have presymptomatic and asymptomatic spread. And I, I alluded to the piece and I said, this is a really brilliant summary of why we should be wearing masks. And so well done. Thank you. Shifting now to something also I enjoy hearing you discuss, which is something that you've alluded to several times as beach scolding. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe explain what that is and why it might have unintended consequences. After the masks, I was like, oh, wait, am I going to like write my way through this pandemic? And I just quickly realized there's going to be a lot of need for sociology. And one of the earliest things I wrote after I wrote about masks was the closing of parks. Because I started seeing all these places closing parks and telling people to stay home. And this was April 2020. So I wrote this piece saying, you realize it's a pandemic. It's going to be about a year if we're lucky. So you can't just tell people to stay home for a year. I understand like in March, we know nothing. Everything's kind of up in the air. Like you don't really understand what's going on. You're just got, you know, the sort of these hospitals getting overwhelmed. So you just tell everybody stay put. I get the first week. I get the second week. But like in April, we started getting epidemiology out of China to a degree we started getting some epidemiology out of northern Italy and a couple of things became clear one of them was that there was basically no outdoor transmission which of course made sense UV air the other thing is like the aerosol spread was already accepted in Japan maybe there was over dispersion which didn't really make sense except through aerosol spread mm -hmm, right. and there was no outdoor transmission one of the first papers I read which had thousands of cases and they had one outdoor transmission and that was two people jogging together like breathing into each other very close ha, 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 the whole time and even that i think had some indoor components so it was kind of like all right very we don't good. have a lot of outdoor risk modeling theory wise it makes sense for a virus not to be very contagious outdoors especially if it's an aerosol carry thing because it'll just dilute in the air and we're already seeing this epidemiology. Plus, if people are not allowed to go to parks, and if this is going to take a year, which in April I thought this was at least going to take a year, like you don't get out of a pandemic in a week, right? We need a sustainable way for people to socialize because they're going to otherwise socialize indoors in poorly ventilated places, breathing in close contact. And that's just obviously much worse. And I thought, this is crazy. We can't do this. So I wrote a piece in April saying, we have to not close the parks. If congestion is a problem, you tell people if your house number is odd, you come out on these days or, you know, have a ticket system in which you just count the people coming in. And there's 50 million different ways to manage congestion, right? We're in a pandemic. We can figure this out uh, if that's the problem. But just closing parks Absolutely made sense. I wrote that article, April, and then 
What happened is the weather got better and the scolding of parks and beaches got worse because the photographers could go take pictures and say, oh, look at these people on a beach. And I'd just be looking at the picture. It's like Australia bond the beach and there's like seven people on the beach and like nobody breeds right next to each other wearing bathing suits, right? It's naturally a distance thing. And it's, it's a vast beach, probably the safest place you could be in the whole city. And you shoot them away from there. They're going to go indoors. So I was like, stop this. This is crazy. Like I started writing articles about this. I started collecting some examples. And there, (laughs) the contrarian risk compensation thing reared its ugly head again. And people started saying things like, scolding the beach is good because it's going to prevent them from going to... Bars and restaurants. The restaurant near the beach. (laughs) And I was like... Well, if you want people not to go to a restaurant near the beach, tell them not to go to a restaurant near the beach, right? You don't tell people not to go to the beach if what you're trying to communicate is don't go to an indoor restaurant near the beach, right? I mean, this is insane. So I got so. what about people traveling to the beach? I'm like, if you don't want to take a bus, then tell them not to take a bus, arrange something, right? So you don't deal with like these secondary things. But yesterday, Australia's paper of record had, I swear, photographs of these five young people sprawled way out on a beach saying, here, people define the lockdown. And I mean, you could tell that they just refused to be interviewed. I'm like, they're probably doing the safest thing they possibly can. Like, I understand rules are rules, perhaps, but these are stupid rules. Like, you have beaches. Let people go to the beaches. It's so sad. The playgrounds with the police tape around them and the beaches. Yes. Again, like, the first month, I understand. Like, the first week, you don't know what on earth is going on. Do we have measles? Do we have Ebola? What on earth is going on? So you're afraid of fomites. You're afraid of this. Like, so the first two weeks, I forgive everything. You max everything and then, and also you don't want your hospitals overwhelmed, but like a month in, you can kind of start figuring things out. Instead, what happened is whatever we did the first week, like the two weeks to crush the curve, and then we got stuck (laughs) on whatever messaging we did there, which I think has been terrible, to be honest. Which brings us to another area where contrarians have had their field day, which is with our vaccines. What is your opinion of the vaccines? the rollout, the response to them, general thoughts. Okay, so my general thought is we have something that's neither terribly necessary nor very effective, which is disinfection, that is still high up on our recommendations and schools are closing uh, like once a week. Hygiene theater. Yes, the hygiene theater. I'm like, I'm not against disinfecting high-touch surfaces or, you know, wash your hands. That's always sensible. But obviously, it's a little out of hand with schools closing a whole day just to do what? I don't know. And there's no RCT showing disinfection works. It's not like there's any big science behind it. I'm not even sure the theory works, like because the school is closed on, say, 5 p.m. And then there's nobody in it till 9 a.m. tomorrow, which is like probably more than enough for any virus to stop being very viable. And then we're going to clean it up. And then there's another 12 hour. Like it doesn't strike me as there's not a lot of science. There's not a lot of reason. And on the other hand, we have some of the fastest, most amazing vaccines we've ever had with their efficacy against just the symptomatic disease blowing my mind And I'm just writing an article about it. So I went back and looked at the New York Times front pages. So Pfizer, when it gets announced, it gets a single column saying 94% efficacy. 
like, you know, where are the church bells ringing, <laughs> right? Like, this is amazing news. And then we got Moderna like a week later. And when <laughs> Pfizer came, I was thrilled. But part of me was like, okay, wait for confirmation, wait for confirmation, right? Because it was like, it came out like with that before the paper. And then Moderna came out and said 94.5%. At that point, this is independent confirmation. It's the same mRNA technology, a competing company, almost identical efficacy. And I just checked the New York Times headline. It got two columns (laughs) saying, another vaccine appears to work. (laughs) Talk about understating it, like, you know, moon landing may have happened. And the news since has been amazing. We got the asymptomatic infection reduction in December from the EUA. Pfizer did the swabbing and found two-third reduction. We've had, you know, really, really good news. But what did we start? We start telling people what they can't do. Like there was literally viral articles telling people what they can't do, even if vaccinated, before anybody got vaccinated. I'm like, what is this hurry? Who don't even have any vaccination in their near future. December, we've started barely vaccinating healthcare workers. New York Times starts publishing articles on what you can't do after vaccination. And there's these viral threads on, I'm not going to like stop social distancing. I'm kind of like, all right, fine. Like I get it. We're going to be cautious for a little bit, but like, what's the hurry? Nobody's got like the vaccine to be scolded. And again, we don't trust people. We feel like, like if they're vaccinated, they're going to go, I don't know, get sick and cough on people. Like, I don't know what the mental model of this constant scolding is. It makes no sense to me. Yeah. I've been trying to message it as follows that once you're vaccinated and you're guests in your home are vaccinated, it doesn't make sense anymore to wear masks. And even that concept strikes people as being a little overly optimistic. And yet I'm thinking, well, this virus is never going away. We have to give people some way to to exit this. Do you think that some people are sustaining the negative messages just because they want to make sure that they're not wrong again? So I can't read people's mind, but I have a bunch of theories on this. Part of it is the overly cautious sort of better to be wrong thing, but that's not good because that backfires in its own way. The second thing is confusing. We don't know yet with we don't know anything yet, right? We don't know for sure yet how much is perfectly valid. We don't yet know how much they'll blunt transmission, but we don't know yet if if they do, whether they do, that's nonsense, right? Yeah. We know like from the day the Moderna two-thirds asymptomatic reduction came out. Yeah, you're talking about between the first and second doses. Right. So as soon as you got some initial data and also the idea that you could have this great drop in symptomatic cases, like you cut them by 95% and you cut all severity basically down this much and have no reduction in transmission. Very biologically implausible. Yeah, it, that was very implausible. But there's also the vaccine's own efficacy, Mm -hmm. right? So the thing we're worried about right now is this transmission, which I think will happen to some degree. Yeah, yes. Because that's how it works. It'll be a leaky vaccine of a bit, but probably greatly blunted. So the transmitter is going to be less likely to transmit is going to have a lower viral load if that happens. And then the receiver is being exposed to a lower infectious dose. And plus, they're vaccinated. So if you kind of sort of add those things up, I'm not saying like make policy on my back of the envelope calculation, but it's pretty clear 
that the risk is going to quickly dip below something like driving. Absolutely. So if you look at like the risk factors, if you look at the math a little bit, it is so clear that you being hospitalized because you interacted masklessly with another vaccinated person <laughs> when you two have been fully vaccinated, like the ideal scenario, is very quickly going to dip very, very low. Yeah. So in that particular case, when you have that, it becomes a trade-off. Because I saw a really sad question from a 90-year-old woman saying, can I hug my grandchildren? Yeah. And the answer was like, no. And I'm kind of like, I mean, have you looked at actorial <laughs> statistics yet? I don't want to be grim here, but telling a 90-year-old to wait another year is not a lightweight thing to say. No, no. That human need there is not something to sort of brush away and say, why can't you just be a little bit more patient? Yeah. And people have been isolated for a year. So once the risk becomes low enough, I think it becomes almost inhumane yes. not to tell people that the risk is not zero. But you can even tell them like one in this, like from based on what we got, this is what it looks like and let people have sort of a graduated risk. Now, personally, I would be for a policy of wearing masks in public, in grocery stores, places like that for a long time, because once again, the stigma, right? I don't want to have a grocery store having arguments with who's vaccinated, who's not, right? So the sociology of like, when do we all take our masks off? It's probably community-based, when community numbers go yeah. down, when yeah. hospital numbers go down. So that's based on everybody else. But when can a grandma hug her grandchildren is when the grandma is vaccinated. That's to me, if I were advising my own grandma, that to me would be the bar. And now what's the risk there? There's the unvaccinated kid. And I feel like that we can sort of tell people, here's the risk numbers as far as we can see and you know here's what to do yeah. and i mean it doesn't seem like a huge problem to me to develop guidelines and the problem with not developing guidelines is that we're undermining the most amazing vaccines <laughs> uh, we're scaring people with like what you can't do and you can't do this and you can't take off your mask we're not giving different public private guidance we're not recognizing that especially the elderly cannot just wait another year without, right. you know, risking not being able to uh, survive that year. And I've seen all the sort of the anti-vaxxers, they're going to town with this. And mm -hmm. they're kind of like, see the public health officials, they're moving the goalpost again. Even vaccines aren't going to change. This is all goal because the vaccines are great. <laughs> like, yes, there's not enough access is important. I want them to be global. I want equity. I want a faster rollout. I want to go to the neighborhoods. Or, like, I want to do all those things. But I really don't understand why on earth we're crouching them in this negativity. Yeah, well, you know, I agree with you. And I'm trying to make the same message. Most, I think, infectious disease doctors are. But some of us are on the other side saying it's too soon. <laughs> Since our audience consists of IED doctors, mostly, mm -hmm. quickly, if you could, tell us your thoughts on how our preparation for an influenza pandemic might have kind of derailed us on this one. And you're welcome to use over dispersion. We can handle it. Right. We can handle it. Right. <laughs> so this kind of skewed distributions are sociologically pretty important in um, internet settings. In social media and digital media and a lot of things, there are power laws everywhere. If you look at it, uh, a few blogs get all the hits and everybody gets a little bit of hits. This kind of over-dispersed phenomena are familiar to me. 
And I find them quite interesting from a systems perspective because they create different stable dynamics, right? They're not like your usual Gaussian normal distribution. And very often we have no idea how to think about them. That kind of long tail. And it's something I've known about in other contexts. So when this pathogen started sort of show, I started reading the epidemiology just because one, it was very interesting. Two, I started thinking about how do we make this public health measure sustainable for a year? So I was reading about the epidemiology to understand the risk so we could do better risk management, which, which made me realize, oh, this is overdispersed. This is super spreading driven. By March and April, this was pretty clear that right. it was a super spreading driven thing. And that's partly why, like how I got into it, because I was thinking about you know, sustainable public health measures. To think about that, you need to understand risk. And then I started reading like EPI documents of places like Japan. It was completely based on this idea. They were not even doing a lot of testing, partly because they also didn't have a lot of tests. They were kind of like us, that it was a problem for them. But they dealt with it by realizing that they should direct the tests they did have to try to identify clusters. Mm-hmm. Because 80% of the people weren't... Weren't transmitting at all. Yeah, at all. But... Some people were transmitting a lot. So a transmission event was important. A case was not, right? So they were really focused on finding the transmission events rather than finding every last case. Because if somebody's transmitted once, the odds are they've transmitted many times. So once you find somebody who's transmitted, then you want to go and find all their contacts, right? You want to do this kind of backward contact tracing. So there were all these really interesting optimization strategies that... They deployed along with recognizing, you know, airborne transmission and ventilation guidelines. And yep. they had the 3C messaging, you know, close contact crowds and stuff. It was, it worked better than most yep. things that were a lot more severe in nature, but did not have the right target. So I started sort of thinking, why aren't we doing this? Like why on earth? Because you have to react to the risk you have. And then I realized that a lot of the Western pandemic playbook, not completely unnecessarily or unwarranted, is based on the flu pandemic Mm -hmm. that will come and hit us. And with the flu pandemic, there isn't much to do. It is not similarly over-dispersed. Kids are super spreaders. Definitely. Right? So you do close schools. In fact, that's probably how we got rid of the flu partially, by doing the wrong thing for the kids, uh, but (laughs) (laughs) we don't have the flu anymore much. So there's a lot of these things that like, you just kind of, once it gets into like this flu-like spread, something, you just wait for the vaccine. Like there's not that much you can do. People do transmit a lot more and it it has a kind of fatalism. You just kind of let it burn out till the vaccine comes and the vaccine comes, I think the flu timeline is what, six months, nine months? Yeah. Um, and it's like your vaccine is, uh, there's a ceiling to how effective it's going to be, 60 70%, although with mRNA, it may change in the future. hope so. Yeah, I know. I felt like, okay, we're doing the flu playbook here, yeah. but we should do a SARS-MERS playbook. Yeah. Aerosol, airborne. I mean, flu is also airborne, but just the infectiousness pattern is different. Like, it's not over-dispersed. And the countries like Japan that yeah. were doing the SARS-MERS playbook, as I would call it, were doing much better. Part of it is, yes, we didn't have a huge SARS experience in the U.S., but Canada had it. Yep. So it's not like Canada was completely outside of that. And they even had healthcare transmission yep. and all of that. So it's not like they're completely naive. And the second thing is, 
you know, there's all these expertise that in Japan, in Hong Kong, in Taiwan that have been through similar threats before. And I'm just sort of flabbergasted that our playbook did not get updated. And I think there's a tendency to blame a lot of the U.S. response failures on Trump. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt that he made many, many things worse Mm -hmm. by meddling with the CDC, by constantly misinforming and misdirecting. So there's no doubt that he was a really harmful influence on the course of the pandemic. But that doesn't explain the Western European pattern. Or what UK is doing, which is lots of things wrong, except perhaps the vaccination part. So I think there was a broader Western problem with not switching to the correct playbook early enough. And again, the first weeks, first month, I forgive everything from everyone. because (laughs) Terrifying. Right. And you don't know what you got, right? You're just trying to plug all the holes. But if you read Japanese epidemiology documents... The ones I have read from February have every important aspect of this nailed. Wow. There's three things that are important, right? One is the pre-symptomatic transmission. Like if you don't put that into your playbook, nothing's going to work. For example, just the paper out now, there's no way for contact tracing to work at the scale if you have pre-symptomatic transmission. I saw that paper. It's not going to happen because the numbers are not going to work. The second thing is the aerosol transmission. Like you have to understand that because otherwise you don't have the correct guidelines. The third thing I think is the overdispersion mm-hmm. because if you have those three elements, you can devise proper guidelines and then you need the sociology to try to sort of make them sustainable. But if you read the February documents from Japan, they have it. Yeah, like they amazing. have every thing so which makes me think it wasn't impossible right it wasn't unknowable they looked at the diamond princess and they saw some of the people who were going in with droplet precautions were getting infected and i spoke to dr oshitani who's a japanese top epidemiologist and a professor and he kind of was like look those people were professionals they went in with droplet precautions they got infected That's a signal. Those are not minor things. Mm. I don't know why we didn't switch. (laughs) Somebody will write a great book on what happened in the European health agencies, uh, in the U.S. and Canada. It was also harmful to have this dichotomous split between droplet and aerosol when it's obviously a a gradation. So I got a couple more questions for you. One is how you think this will, quote, end. I don't really predict a lot of things. I know you started by saying (laughs) I'm prescient, but I actually read the papers and say them. The things I say, by the time I say them, they seem obvious to me. (laughs) That's the skill. Thank you. But I don't feel like I'm predicting. You see, when I say stuff like, you know, there's pre-symptomatic transmission, I'm not predicting this. Okay. Like when I say this vaccine is going to blunt transmission, especially since I'm not a medical person, I'm actually cautious. Great. I read every paper I can find and then I go ask everybody I can find, like, what am I missing? What am I missing? So I like really second guess myself with all of those things. And I try to like argue with myself. The reason I'm saying all of this is that everything I've spoken out, like I've written about ventilation in July, I've written the clusters days before the White House pandemic. Yeah, I did the parks, all of those things. I literally, they were all there for almost anybody else to say, you know, we have to pay attention to ventilation. By the time I wrote that piece, it was pretty obvious. I'm not saying like I'm not doing anything, but I'm not making stuff up. All right. That's the prediction part. Okay. So my feeling is that in countries like the United States, which have an ample supply, 
if we can crack the hesitancy bit for especially younger people, it's going to end very quickly, much quicker than people think. I have no predictions for the March because we do have the variants and we do have vaccination and we have seasonality. And with things that are exponential in different directions, like you could miss a week and it could go either way. Mm -hmm. Like you're a week early and it goes this way and you're a week late. So I don't really know how March is going to play. It's completely possible that this will continue on this downward slide because we're vaccinating fast enough and seasonality is helping us. I think that's plausible. It's also plausible that the transmissibility is established right now. And for the remaining unvaccinated population, it could cause enough outbreaks to persist. Like you're seeing this in the Israel data right now, like even with enormous vaccination, because the variant, especially the uh, UK one, took off there earlier. So I don't really know the March timing. Mm -hmm. But like looking at the numbers, I think sometime this year, we're just going to stop having deaths or hospitalizations in any large numbers. Hooray! Partly because I think people are either going to get vaccinated or we're going to get some outbreaks among the young and natural infection. Now, what happens in fall depends on if we have convinced the vulnerable populations, because we're going to have a supply by then. Mm-hmm. Again, we're even going to have a kid vaccine probably by the end of summer. So going into fall, when we start facing seasonality come against us again, I think it will be a question of what percent of the vulnerable population, the elderly, have been left out of this. Great. That's a nice way of framing it without having to bring it into any magical powers of prediction by looking at the data. (laughs) Okay, last question. Have you ever been wrong on anything? Oh, my goodness. Of course, I'm wrong on so many things all the time. The thing is, though, by the time I write something in the New York Times or Atlantic... I only write them after I'm really, really, really <laughs> past the point of having Smart. kicked its tires. Yeah. If anything, you know, I have a newsletter and in my newsletter, I sort of got a little worried because people were liking it a little too much because they've subscribed to my newsletters. I subscribe. Thank you. But the problem is it's people who like me. <laughs> so I actually hired people to try to take my arguments down. Because I really am a strong believer in everybody's usually wrong about stuff. Mm. And what you want to do is you want to be wrong about them before you write for (laughs) the New York Times. Great advice. Yeah, like the thing is, and this is what's been so frustrating to me, is that people are like, oh my gosh, look at your record. Why have you been so prescient? And I'm kind of like, it's actually almost like a failure of the system that I get to do this because I feel like I'm overly cautious. By the time I did it, there should have been like 20 other people with better credentials than me to write that article. You tell me there's something about the way the medical profession, public health messaging works, where it's very hard for people to speak out of turn, Yeah, is what I've gathered. The people are very smart and very educated. And I think they're just wary of speaking out of turn. But in a pandemic, you got to go ahead of things. You can't just wait. Like if the CDC is slow, you got to push it because late is really dangerous against exponential growth. So I haven't really figured out how once things slow down, I'll think about how did this happen. But 
Yeah. It's a question for you. You tell me. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, my pleasure. It's been fascinating. I think we've set a record for an OFID podcast for both <laughs> insights and for duration, which is appropriate. So once again, I've been talking to Dr. Zainab Tufekshi, and she's an associate professor at the University of North Carolina, a sociologist, a computer program, and a brilliant writer for The Atlantic and The New York Times. Thanks so much for joining me.